tonight's reading is from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everyone, everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is in the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, good evening. Thank you for choosing to worship with us here this evening. My name is Pastor Brooks. I'm the lead pastor at Grace in North Liberty. Some of you are like, oh, you were here last week. Why isn't Jason preaching? Well, I was scheduled to preach tonight. I was not scheduled to preach last night. So take it up with Jason with his pulled muscle issues. So now we are glad that Jason does not have heart troubles, but merely something else. Pray that that would be found out soon, but nothing, nothing serious, nothing to worry about. We're continuing our series, uh, Living Stones. We're going through and we're taking a look at what God is doing in building a household of faith, starting from the beginning. And then by way of taking a look at what Christ has done, seeing how you and I are included in that spiritual household as well. Now, this is a question that I posed last week. I posted it in the negative last week, so I'm, I'm rephrasing it in the positive. Last week it was, why do we do the things we know we should not do? This week the question is similar, but it's phrased in the positive, why can't we do the things we know that we ought to do? Now, the answer to that question, at least the first part that we've visited last week, was, was this was this this issue of misplaced worship. So one of the reasons why we do things we know we shouldn't do, and one of the reasons why we are not able to love one another as, as, as Christ loved us, or why we are not able to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, is because our worship is misplaced. Instead of valuing Christ supremely above all, we value Christ, maybe, but we value a lot of things more than we do Christ. And so our worship is misplaced. But even, and, and, the, and the solution to that, as we learned last week with Jacob's vision of, of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending, the solution to right worship is that we need a, a clear vision of who God is. And, and, and that inspires us to write worship. But here's the follow-up. Even if we have a right view of who God is, we still might find ourselves unable to love or unwilling to love the way that God has called us, not because we don't necessarily understand cognitively who God is, but 
we have a misunderstood identity. We have a misunderstood identity. Jason, in uh, a very short time, is going to be taking a sabbatical. And uh, one year ago, about this time right now, I was coming back from my first sabbatical after 25 plus years of ministry. And one of the things that the Lord revealed to me was that I'm a hot mess in a lot of ways. But in particular, I realized that while I was on sabbatical, God showed me that I have a, a, a lot of identity issues, a lot of identity issues. And one of the things that the Lord revealed to me, and I wrote about this and, and the insider, and I also preached about it. I'm not sure how much I shared downtown was that I have this, I have this pattern and I don't, it's been a long, long time. I'm 55 years old. And I think this started when I was a kid, but I dislike failure my own failure. I loathe it. I'm, I'm competitive. I don't like to lose, but it's more than that. It's more than that. I don't like to fail morally either. And, and over the years, especially in the North Liberty campus, people have noticed this when I, when I share, and I do share a lot about my failures publicly from the pulpit. I will start to share about some failure uh, either a failure to love in my marriage or just all sorts of things. And as I'm sharing my failure, I tend to get worked up and I, I start to get really tense. I start to kind of lower my stance and I start, to, I start to tense up and I call myself an idiot. But I don't just pronounce the word idiot. It's guttural. It's idiot. So it's pronounced from here in the upper chest. And, and you've heard this, many of you. And, and people sometimes get a laugh out of it. But I remember, I can distinctly remember five years, being in a, five years ago being in a community group. And I was, I was not angry. I wasn't the angry idiot. I was just talking about how I'm an, I'm an idiot. And, and somebody in my community group was annoyed. And they just called me out. And they said, why do you always call yourself that? And I remember arguing with them and defending my right to refer to myself as an idiot. And she said, why do you call yourself that all the time? I said, because I'm an idiot. And, and she called me out. And I, I argued with her. And then after the fact, I'm like, she may be on to something. Well, while I was on sabbatical, while I was on sabbatical, I realized, I realized that that label is from the accuser. That's... Yes, there are times I behave as if I'm an idiot, but that's not my identity. But do you see the, do you see that that's an identity statement? So when I got back, when I got back, I shared this with my wife while I was on sabbatical and, and God revealed, uh, revealed who he sees me to be. And I'll share that later. But I, I remember sharing with, with Jason, I shared, shared it with, uh, with the staff, I shared it with the elders and and I, and I told the elders in particular, I said, listen, I'm not allowed to refer to myself that way anymore. So if you hear me refer to myself as an idiot, I want you to call me out. So last week, I'm preaching. 30 minutes after the sermon, I get a text from Josh. The old angry Brooks showed himself this morning you should probably give me a call before you preach downtown. And so I'm thinking, what did I do? I didn't think I was angry. So I called him up. I said, what's the deal? And he said, 
I heard you self, I heard you use the word idiot once in the first service. And then second, and I thought to myself, ah, should I talk to him? And then after the second service, I'm like, oh no, we need an intervention. I was not even aware of it. I was totally not aware of it. It's just, it, that's a, that's a label that I've given myself or the enemy has given me. And I, I gladly wore those grave clothes and then I cast off those grave clothes and, and I said, no, that's not who I am. And then I'm walking around in the grave clothes that I threw away. Why am I digging them out of the trash? And see, here's the deal. When we live under those labels that sometimes we give ourselves, sometimes we inherited them and our parents gave them to us, or sometimes a teacher told us we'll never amount to anything, or sometimes we just look at a string of failures and, and all of these things, we say, well, that's just who I am. God is saying, that's not who you are. But we believe otherwise, even if, even if we have a right view of God, if we have a misplaced identity, we will not be able to walk and enjoy the blessing that he has for us. So three things we're going to look at. Embracing the blessing requires that we understand not only who God is, but we understand who we are in Christ. And that's three things we're going to look at. Number one, the problem as Jacob perceives it. The problem is Jacob perceives it. The second thing is the problem as uh, he needs to understand it, and it takes a rustling match for him to get there. And then the third thing we're going to take a look at is the power of a new name. So please pray for and with me, and let's get to the text. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Jesus, we thank you that you have given us a new name, which is written on a stone that only you know says in Revelation chapter 3. So Father, would you show us who we are in you? And for those who are not yet in you, we pray that you would call them to yourself, that they would bow to the name above every name and receive that new name, that new identity in Christ. Help me to preach in such a way that Christ is glorified tonight and that we are blessed by having received your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the problem perceived. The problem perceived. So Jacob in in uh, in chapter thirty one in chapter thirty one verse three he is called to go back home. So you recall that Jacob has fled Canaan. He has fled his brother Esau. He's gone to his uncle Laban. He has two wives now. He has two wives and eleven children. Eleven children through those two wives and also two of their servants. So eleven children. He has amassed a fortune. He's amassed. Uh, all sorts of livestock, and he is a very, very wealthy man, and God calls him. I'm not sure exactly how many years he's been gone, but he, now he has a family and has all this wealth, and God says, go home. This is Genesis chapter uh, 31, verse 3. God commands Jacob to return home, and why did he leave home again? He's fleeing from his brother Esau. Esau wants him dead. He wants to kill him because he stole the birthright. Twice he, was, he deceived his brother and his father. Okay, so that's the context. Now, in verse 32, where we pick it up, we see that Jacob, in preparation to go home, he sends, he sends some, some scouts, if you will, to kind of to test the water, see if it's safe to go home. See, it's safe to go home. So they head out. They, they start to make the 600-mile journey there. And, and the servants of Jacob, they find that Esau is, in fact, coming out to meet him. 
And on the way there, they find out that Esau is, is with 400 armed men. Now, that's problematic from Jacob's perspective. Some of Jacob's perspective. And, and what we see here in, in verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So, Jacob's problem, as Jacob understands the problem, is the person of Esau. That's who he perceives his problem to be. He perceives, and, and in a sense, it's, it's, it's an existential threat. He, he, when he left, Esau wanted to take his life, and now he's on his way to meet him with 400 armed men. So it's reasonable to assume that, that Esau is, in fact, a problem. And so how does he address this problem? Well, he prays. He prays. We see here in verse 9, Jacob says, O God of my father, Abraham and God of my father Isaac, Lord, who said to me, return to your country and your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of Esau, my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with their children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he responds appropriately to this perceived threat by, by praying to the Lord. Now, he even prays according to the promise. He brings up to the Father what the Father has promised him, and he's praying according to the promise. Now, so this is all fine and this is all good, but here's what he's doing. Who's the problem? In his mind, Esau. So what does he pray? how does he pray? He prays for God to deliver him from the problem as he sees the problem. Deliver me from my brother Esau. So it's clear that he believes that Esau is the problem. Next, you've heard the saying, um, pray as if everything depends upon God and act as if everything depends upon you. So he does that part first. He prays as if everything depends on God. And now he begins to act as everything depends upon Jacob, which Jacob is pretty good at. And so he begins to, to work the problem. Now, what does he do? What he does in verse 13 through 21 is he's amassed all of this wealth in the form of livestock. And he begins to send envoy after envoy after envoy in a, in a, in a chain of, of gifts. The first is he takes the sheep and he sends a servant with the sheep, all the sheep. And he says, here's what I want you to tell Esau. When you approach Esau, tell them that you are the servant of Jacob who is your servant and that he is giving you all of these gifts, all of these sheep. And then there was a, some distance and then he sent the goats and gave a servant the same instruction and then there was some distance between that envoy and then the cattle and then there was some distance between that envoy and then the camels. So you have this succession, this rolling succession of gifts. And each one is instructed with the same, the, same, the same mantra. Tell Esau, Jacob is your servant, and all of these are yours. So, who's the problem in, Esau, in Jacob's eyes? Esau. 
He's prayed for deliverance. And now he's done what Jacob does. He's trying to manipulate the heart of what he sees to be the problem. In his mind, his brother has always been. He's always been in the way. He has always been in the way of his happiness and his blessing. He's prayed about it, and now he has tried to change the heart of his brother. This is typical marriage counseling 101. Anyone who's ever done marriage counseling has a couple, and these couple, this couple generally sees the other person as the problem. And they've gone to God, and they've asked God to change their heart, deliver me from my problem. And then they try to change the problem themselves, and the problem doesn't change, and then there's just a big hot mess. Now, I'm not saying that Jacob is married to Esau, and I'm not saying that Esau is not, in fact, a problem. He is. But we see that Jacob has come to the end of his rope. There's nothing he can do at this point. And he is still distressed, and he is still greatly fearful. And one of the principles I want to take away here just to point out is that most of the time, most of the time, we see something external to ourselves as the greatest problem in our lives. We see it's a difficult relationship. Well, it's the person we're in the relationship with. It's, it's a difficult job. It's, it's, a, it's, it's always something outside of us, outside of us. So that's how Jacob is perceiving the problem. Now he begins to understand the problem. Let's take a look. That same night he arose, he took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children. He crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So picture the scene. This is at night. The wife, the kids, the servants, everyone else has crossed. And he's just getting some alone time with God. And some unknown assailant attacks him. That's, that's what's happened. That's what's happened. Some unknown assailant attacks him. And the man, and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. Now, I know that Iowa City is a wrestling community. This is not that. This is not that. When you go to Carver and you watch the Hawkeyes wrestle, you see a team come out and you see an athlete take the center of the mat and there's a referee there and the referee tells them to shake hands and they shake hands and then they blow the whistle and then for seven minutes, unless it goes into overtime, they wrestle and then they're done and there's rules. This is not that. This is Jacob being attacked in the middle of the night by someone he doesn't know. This is a struggle for life and death. This isn't a dual meet between two competing college teams. This is a struggle between life. He thought his problem was Esau. Now it's just some unknown dude that he's wrestling with. And the stakes are life and death. He's fighting for his very life. Literally, that's what he believes he's fighting for. I don't know if you've wrestled, but how many of you have wrestled junior high, high school at some point in time? It is exhausting. It's like lifting weights, except the weights are fighting you. They don't want to be lifted, and they're trying to lift you. And I, I remember I, I finished wrestling in, in college in 1990, 
And then I went and taught school for a few years and then I got the itch to compete again and I came back and I started wrestling in 94 to train up through 96 for, to, for the Olympic trials. And I, I was not in my peak physical condition and I, I was not in terrible shape, but I wasn't in great shape. And I came back and I entered in the Iowa wrestling room and I'm wrestling for the Hawkeye Wrestling Club. And I remember my first practice back and I went uh, about a six minute go. That just means six minutes of continuous wrestling. And there was a break and I went into the, went to the bathroom, went into the locker room and I was splashing water in my face and I looked up into the mirror. My face looked like Bob the Tomato from VeggieTales. My blood pressure, if you would have poked me with a pen, the stream of blood could have cut granite. My blood pressure was so high. I was, I thought I was going to die. And that was just six minutes. They've been wrestling all night long. All night long. Jacob is a beast. For somebody to be able to do that physically is unbelievable. Now, what are his choices? Death or hang on. That's how he perceives this. And this is what's going on. So let's keep looking here. Now, the wrestling match begins as a struggle between life and death. But it becomes something else. It becomes something else. Let's take a look. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Full stop. The unknown assailant can't win. He's not able to overcome Jacob. That says quite a bit for Jacob's physical stamina and his ability here. So he can't win, so he touches his hip socket. And his hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. I think it's important to notice the verb that the, the, the author here uses. The Hebrew word is literally translated touch. Not wrench, not, not punch, not pull. It's touch. At that moment, the assailant touches Jacob's hip. His, his hip explodes. It, it's blown out. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, uh, an athlete in a basketball game or a football game or wrestling meet blow out their knee. It's not pretty. Or dislocate a shoulder or elbow. That's what I've, I've seen a dislocated knee. I've seen a dislocated elbow. I've seen a dislocated shoulder in wrestling or football. I've never seen a hip dislocated in any sport. Boom, he's done. Where is he? What happens? His hip was out of joint. Then he said, who is the he said here? Who's speaking? The assailant that touched the hip. Then the assailant who touches the hip says, let me go for day has broken. What does that mean Jacob is currently doing? Still fighting on one leg. He's probably on the ground just holding the guy's legs at this point. He's not, he's not able to fight, but he won't let go. He won't let go. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. He was fighting for his life when he started, and now he's fighting for a blessing. At some point in this match, Jacob figured out that this isn't just some unknown dude that wants to kill me. He believes now that he's wrestling with something that's someone that's supernatural. He understands this guy has been holding back all night long until he wants to be done and then he just touches me and my hip explodes. I think I'm dealing with God here. That's what's going on in his head. And so now he's no longer concerned about his life, but he's holding on and he's demanding a blessing. So what started as a battle for life and death, now he's wrestling for the blessing. Once again, Jacob and that blessing. He's going to get it one way or the other.
And so the assailant, he says to him, what's your name? That's a weird question to ask in the middle of a wrestling match. I've had lots of them over the years. I've never had a conversation with anyone that I ever wrestled in the middle of the match. You don't talk. You just fight. You just compete. But this guy says, what's your name? That's a weird question to ask. And Jacob says, it's Jacob. Now, what's in a name? My name is Brooks. I was named after the baseball player for the the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Famer, Brooks Robinson. My parents weren't even baseball fans. He was just a popular athlete at the time, and they liked the way the name sounded. And that's pretty common for Americans. Americans tend to use names. You know, I just, I like Brooks. Some of you are like, it's a terrible name. Some people think that's a girl's name. Well, that's beside the point, and you make a valid point. But the point is, is that Americans don't put a lot of thought into their names culturally. That's not true of Hebrews. Hebrew, the name means something. The name is a function of who they are, or at least who their parents think they're going to be. You see, an identity is who you or others see yourselves to be. That's what God's asking him. Who do you think you are? Who are you? Who, what's your essence? Who are you? Tell me, at the core, who are you really? And he answers Jacob. It's not the first time somebody's asked him that question. You know the last time that Jacob asked for a blessing? I think Jason preached this message. The last time he asked for a blessing was when he prepared game for his father. And he came in and he presented this game and he says, bless me, father. And his dad, Isaac, said, what's your name? I am Esau, your firstborn son. He lied straight through his teeth to his blind, aging father. You see, the last time somebody asked his name, he lied. He asked for a blessing and he lied. He's asking for a blessing again and the assailant says, tell me your name. Only this time he doesn't lie. He says, Jacob. The last time this happened, immediately after he lied to his father and he left, his brother Esau comes in with game and he presents that to his father and he says, bless me, father, I've prepared the game that you asked for. And he says, well, who are you? I'm Esau, your firstborn son. I've been deceived by your brother Jacob. I've given him the blessing. There is nothing for me to give to you. And what does Esau confirm? Genesis 27, verse 36, 36, he is rightly named Jacob, for he is a usurper. He is a cheat. That's what his name means. You see, his identity was assigned early on. They didn't pick Jacob because a baseball player had that name and it sounded good. They picked Jacob because when the twins were in Rebecca's womb, they were jostling and Rebecca's like, what in the world is going on? And God revealed to her that two nations are striving within your womb. They're wrestling. But the older will serve the younger. And so the time for birth comes and, and, and the firstborn is Esau and this little hairy kid comes out, this screaming baby covered in hair. But then the hand comes out 
grasping his heel, he's not letting go of this blessing. And they name him Jacob, which sounds like heel grabber or cheat. From the moment this kid learned to talk, he heard his parents referring to him as you little usurper, you. You little Jacob, you. You little heel grabber. You little wrestler. You little cheater. You don't think that has an impression when you are labeled from the time you come out of the womb over and over? You're a usurper. You're a cheater. You're a lighter. You're a stealer. That's what you are. That's what you were doing when you came out out of the womb. Trying to grab something that doesn't belong to you. It's like the little kid who was told they're stupid by their, 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 their first grade teacher. It's, it's like the kid who, who their parents tell them, you'll never amount to anything, you're just stupid. And sometimes you don't even know where these labels come from, they just, you just end up owning them and you start to think that this is who you are. There's no wonder that Jacob was a usurper. What What did everyone expect him to do? What did they tell him that he was going to do? What did his mother encourage him to do? Live up to your identity. See, identity is a powerful, powerful, powerful thing. And so God asks him, who are you? And he says, Jacob. Jacob. He's lived up to his identity his whole life. Or down to it, depending on your perspective. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. That's not who you are anymore. But Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. And Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. You see, the blessing comes through the reception of a new identity. As long as Jacob sees himself as a cheater, as a usurper, as someone who has to use his own cunning to get something which God has already promised him, he cannot and he never will enjoy the blessing. He'll always be anxious. He'll always be looking over his shoulder. He'll always think that Esau is the problem, the person he has to take out or eliminate or manipulate And he'll never be at peace. He'll never experience what God wants for him. As long as he cannot see himself the way that God sees him, he can't walk in that blessing. And as long as I am convinced that I'm really an idiot when I fail, I'll always live down to that. Who do you think you are? What's your identity? You want to be blessed? I'm asking you, how do you really see yourself? When your family's on the other side of the bank and you're alone at night and you're wrestling with God and those thoughts creep into your head, who do you think you are? What voices do you hear? I am a loser. I am an idiot. I am sexually addicted. I am a glutton. I am incompetent. I'm not good enough. 
All of those things. And those are all negative. Those are all negative. But there's other things that we hear in our head. They're not negative. They're neutral. But they're not who we are. I am a pastor. I am a mother. I am a student. Do you understand the power of an I am statement? When you say I am and then you fill in the blank, that locks you in. That locks you in. I am a child of God. That's who I am. If I am anything else, it's self-limiting. It's self-limiting. God renames Jacob. See, the power of a name, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen, we all come from various backgrounds, some of us more dysfunctional than others. We've all received labels from parents, siblings, teachers, teammates, uh, fellow students, people we work with. We've all heard things about ourselves. We've all said things about ourselves. And those identities tend to sometimes be linked to failure. And so we call ourselves idiots. We call ourselves incompetent. We call, our, we call ourselves whatever. And the truth of the matter is that, yes, we've done those things. We've failed. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Christ doesn't view us according to flesh. He views us according to who we are now in him, if we are in Christ. And your identity, you're not an idiot. You're not a loser. When I was on sabbatical, and this is why Jason has to take this sabbatical. You have to hear from God who you are. And the only way that you can hear from God who you are is to be alone with him. And wrestle. To turn off the phone. To turn off the TV. To turn off the computer. And just be quiet. And wrestle with him. And let him ask you, who are you really though? And I know that most of you know the right answer. You can pass the theological test. You know your identity in Christ. Until you don't. And when I was on sabbatical, it occurred to me that this is an ongoing pattern. I keep referring to myself as this person, this idiot. And I said, God, who do you see me as? And John chapter 15, just it sprung into my mind instantly. And I, I heard these words, the, ver, the words of scripture. It says, no longer do I call you a servant, for a servant does not know the will of his master, but I call you a friend. That's my identity. That's who I am. I'm not an idiot. I am redeemed. You are not a loser. You are redeemed. You are loved. You are righteous. 
You are cherished. You are valued. You are holy in Christ. And that is your identity. That's who we are in Christ. But man, there are times we want to put those grave clothes right back on. I know who I am in Jesus, and yet when I fail, I tend to revert. I get angry, and I start, I start wearing those labels again. And I love what Paul says I, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He lists a whole bunch of bad identities in, in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral... The idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, or nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a whole bunch of different kinds of identity statements. Some of them sexual, some of them not. And, and, and all of them are ident- revelers, idolaters. They're all statements. This is who these people are. He says, those people will not enter the kingdom of God. But what does he say? Verse 11, and such were some of you. That's who you used to be. Yeah, it's true. That's who you used to be. That's your old identity. It's not who you are anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's not who you are anymore. You are a child of the living God. Those, that's your new identity. Yes, it's true. You used to do those things. And yes, it's true. You probably still struggle with wanting to do those things. And yes, it's probably true. You still fall into those things. But that doesn't define you. That's not who you are. You're redeemed. That's your new identity. That's your new identity. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And the sun rose up upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Here's the hard truth for most of us. For us to embrace our identity, God's going to have to break us. It's very, very rare that a person can truly embrace who they are in Christ without first being wounded. You say, well, why would God hurt us? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Here's the thing. I slip back into the idiot mantra very, very easily. Jacob will slip back into the Jacob name and identity very, very easily. So what God has done is he has touched his hip and dislocated it so that he walks with a limp. And every time he steps, he's reminded of who he is. There is a step-by-step reminder of his new identity. It's called a limp. God loves you enough to wound you. And you see, that's the beauty of this. When God reveals to us our weakness, our woundedness, it causes us to be dependent upon who we are in Christ and not our ability to change ourselves because we can't change ourselves. And so we're wounded. We're wounded. Uh, As we close here, I want to close with Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you just turn there, such a beautiful verse. Any of you ever read this passage and been troubled by the theological implications of it? Not Philippians 2. 
well, not two, but this, this passage with Jacob. That how many of you, it somewhat bothers you that God can't beat Jacob? Does that, does that seem tr- problematic? Okay, you got this infinite God that can't best the shepherd on the banks of a creek. I mean, come on, really? How does this work? How is it that God is not able to overcome him? The reason God is not able to overcome him is because, because God self-limits himself. God takes on human flesh. He embraces weakness so that he can identify with us in our struggle and struggle with us and struggle for us. Philippians chapter 2 Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of the Father. So God became man and he dwelt among us. He humbled himself. He became obedient. And he was not simply wounded on our behalf. When he took to the center of the mat, if you will, he was not wounded, he was crushed. No one touched his hip and blew out his hip, but his joints were all pulled out of socket. And he died the death that you and I could not and dare not die, so that he might give you the life that none of us can actually live, his righteousness. That's the beauty of Christ. That's the beauty of his humility. And that's why God chose to become a guy on the banks of a creek thousands of years ago so he could struggle and lose so that by losing, we could have victory. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the calling that we have in Christ. Thank you for our new identities in Christ. Lord, I confess, we confess, Lord, we know who we are intellectually, but there are so many times that we don't live according to who we are. We forget, we put on old grave clothes. Lord, we repent of those old identities. Lord, we embrace our calling, our new name, our names written in heaven. We embrace who we are in Christ. Spirit, open our eyes, show us as we prepare communion, as we taste as we taste the bread, as we drink the juice, would you remind us of who we are so that we might celebrate our new identities in you. In Jesus' name, amen.